let's reward farmers for putting the carbon back in and let's reward farmers for biodiversity and all these things that have got flow-on effects for everyone around the globe. Welcome to 100 Climate Conversations. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands upon which we meet today, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. We respect their elders past, present and future and recognise their continuous connection to country. Today is number 80 of 100. We're four-fifths of the way there. Happening every Friday, the series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We're recording today live in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was the home to museum, it was the Ultimo Power Station. Built in 1899, it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system in the 1960s. In the context of this architectural artefact, we shift our focus forward to the innovations of the net zero revolution. I'm Craig Rucastle from Docos Like War and Waste and Fight for Planet A. Mick Wettenhall is an experienced grazier and grains and cotton farmer on the Macquarie River near Trangy. He's founder and director of Soil Sequest, a unique collaboration of scientists and farmers transforming agriculture into a gigaton carbon drawdown industry. He's a passionate believer that agriculture has a major role to play not only in food security, but also in sustainable environmental management and climate change mitigation. We're thrilled to have him join us today. Please join me in welcoming Mick. Right, so Mick, you run a cropping and grazing farm in Trangy in New South Wales with your wife, Kirsty. Tell us a bit about your farm and how you came to be there. I've uh, been out there for the last 20 years. It's my wife's um, family farm. Um, yeah, on the banks of the quarry out there, irrigators grow irrigated cotton, um, wheat, canola, the cereals, pulses, and beef cattle as well. So as I said, she's fifth generation and her family was actually one of, uh, well, the first family really to bring wheat growing um, to, our, to our area. It was thought back then that you couldn't grow wheat west of the Newell and old uh, Frank Mack at the time used to grow quite a bit of oats for his horses. And apparently, so the legend goes, the, uh, um, his chaff cutter broke down. They used to grow up for chaff. So his chaff cutter broke down one spring and the oats went through to grain and he grew up a lot of grain. He thought, geez, be buggered, you can't grow wheat. <laughs> <laughs> so the following year, he, he cleared a thousand acres um, with horse-drawn gear, obviously back in the day. And was um, by the turn of the century, they were farming 9,000 acres of wheat with with horse-drawn gear, so. so. This is like the year 1900. And 1900. It's all, all horse-drawn. Yep. No doubt hundreds of people on the farm. Very different now for you. How many people work on the farm? Yeah, there's myself and my, my wife and we've got two full-time employees. It's extraordinary. And you're running that whole farm with that. It's I cool. know, yeah. It's changed, uh, yeah, vastly since since those days. Farming has changed enormously over the years and obviously it's facing another challenge now with climate change. Have you seen the impact of that on your farm? Definitely, yeah. And going back to that, what was seen as progress that of growing wheat and tearing up that grassland to put a monoculture into the ground, you know, was um, basically built our country, I suppose. And but sadly, with that, that's where the carbon started to get lost from the landscape. And I suppose probably to frame it up 
early, the, the importance of carbon in soil is just basically the ultimate metric for how how well your soil um, is performing, how it's like your soil and your plant's ability to mitigate itself against disease and uh, and drought and everything. So, Given that importance, what is it that about kind of traditional farming practices over the last century or even the last just 20 years? What is it about those traditional practices that has kind of taken the carbon out and what's led to this problem? I suppose that's come about by um, industrial agriculture um, and yeah, looking to synthetic fertilisers, all these things that have taken you know, the carbon out of the soil. So. so they've kind of solved one problem and created another problem as it's happened. Have you seen, because obviously, I mean, scientists talk about just getting to more extremes, that you basically have, you know, obviously we've always had fires and floods in Australia or droughts, but now we get longer droughts or bigger floods. Have you been affected by that at all or is your area fairly stable? No, definitely not. No, we had a, 17, 18 and 19 were just three of the driest years that we've mm. we've seen. Like we'd never not normally plant a crop and um, we'd always get enough rain to get a crop in prior to that. But we had sort of three years where it just, we didn't plant. So you, you wouldn't even plant? No. Yeah, wow. No. So, so you, we talked about the difference in farming from, I guess, you know, five generations ago in the 1900s, how it's farming and how it's different now. How has farming on your farm changed since the 2000s when your wife and you took over to now? Like you, know, you came in there, obviously your wife's family had a particular way of farming. Have you changed that at all? I've had a real passion for, for carbon my, my whole career and I've been looking at ways that we could build carbon um, in agricultural systems. There was a real reliability around the, uh, the weather before and we're irrigated. So during the 90s, if you didn't have the water, um, you would generally pull the beds up and you'd punt on getting water to grow the crop. But we just stopped doing that in the, in the noughties because it was just, yeah, it just wasn't coming. So we're just finding it that less allocation for irrigation has been a real real change around that. One of my understandings is that the more soil carbon you have, the more carbon you have in the soil, the more it actually holds water. So is it that the lack of water has meant that you've had to kind of go, we need to have more carbon in the soil to be able to deal with this? It's definitely definitely part of it, yeah, carbon. So carbon. What are the advantages? What are the advantages you get as a farmer from having a higher content of carbon in the soil? So soil carbon underpins every function in soil. So it's water holding capacity, it's nutrient availability, it's infiltration, how much air is in that soil. It's basically the barometer for how healthy your soil is. And the, the more carbon you have, the less input you need. As I was saying before, like it's we've had this system where we've had people making lots of money providing solutions to low carbon soils that create less carbon that require more solutions. So we've been, had this insidious decline in agriculture for the last, yeah, so there are advantages from obviously increasing the soil carbon at the farm level. Where does it come in in terms of addressing climate change? Explain how soil carbon is part of the solution as you see it for climate change as well. Yeah, I think we can't get away from it. Agriculture has been a massive contributor to it. The world's lost 60% of its carbon stocks out of agricultural soil. So it really has a, had a big contribution um, to, to the problem. But it's also, we've got a massive opportunity to, to, that I see it to leverage it as a, as a climate mitigation tool because you think about it, we've got uh, private enterprise 
um, the world's farmers, I think there's, you know, there's uh, 570 million farms or something around the world. We, we uh, farm an area the size of um, South America where we grow our crops um, and we, we graze livestock on an area the size of Africa. So it's like 40% of the world's land mass that, that farmers do business on, private enterprise, that um, to date have been incentivised by way of the market to remove that carbon from the from the landscape and put it um, into the into the atmosphere, where the problem in the atmosphere is just the, the solution that's uh, in the soil. Like I said, all those good things it does. It's such a problem out there, but it just it's the only way a farmer can mitigate himself mm. against climate change is by is lifting his carbon stores. So it benefits the farmers. What you're saying that you could actually use farms to actually store carbon in the soil long-term, that's the kind of goal that you're looking towards. In 2012, you founded Soil Sequest 2031 with Guy Webb with the aim to increase the carbon in our soils, working with a carbon-capturing fungus discovered in our soils. Can you tell us about this fungus and how it works? Guy was at, uh, at a carbon conference in Dubbo and this bloke spoke on the last day of this carbon conference and he was a professor from Sydney Uni called Peter McGee. And he was um, presenting his work that he'd done with a particular type of fungi called dark septate endophytes. And he was a uh, mycologist. He's retired now. Um, and he basically he'd found carbon inside of soil microaggregates that was dated to hundreds to thousands of years old, which made sense to him because there's, there's two things. There's two ways that we lose carbon out of soil, oxidation and hydrolysis. So water and oxygen are really corrosive to carbon in soil. So irrespective of the type of carbon that it is, it'll be lost compared to particle size and time. It will be lost if it's exposed to those two things. So when they discovered the carbon inside the microaggregate made sense to him because it's anaerobic in the centre of a microaggregate. So he thought, well, how did that carbon get in there? So there's so, no oxygen in it. And can it, does it also protect from the water as well? Well, but this is, this is the other part. So how did it get in there? You can put a line straight through plants straight away because it physically will not fit in a, in a microaggregate. So he did his work with fungi and they isolated a particular strain of fungi called these dark septate endophytes that do this job that basically they partner with the plant in a symbiotic relationship and then they convert photosynthate, so simple sugars, linear chain carbon into a stable, a water-stable compound. And then it takes it off through the soil, through its hyphae, that it, uh, it goes through the soil and finds these microaggregates or even takes it to depth in the soil where there's no, no oxygen and stores it. So you've blocks both those chemical processes that we, how we lose carbon, hydrolysis, oxidation, it it's blocked. It, it's blocked. So what's a hydroaggregate? Just explain. A microaggregate? Microaggregate. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it's a space between the soil particles. Okay, okay. Yeah, so. so you've got this fungi that somehow takes the carbon, protects it from oxygen and water, and therefore stores it for many, many years. Yes. And this is what Peter McGee had found. And no one else was interested in it? And that was the thing, that was the penny drop for me because we told him we'd been building bigger roots and doing green manuring and all that stuff. And he said, he used the analogy, it's like you're putting fuel on a, on a fire. He said, you get good agronomic outcomes, which we did, you know, you'd see that, but you're not necessarily building that long-term store because it's staying what they call the labile pool. So it's, and it's really important part of it. And this is where people 
have been tripped up and we've had trouble getting picked up in the early days because th people thought, well, we're taking away from carbon cycling, you know, we need that to feed the plants. No, we're taking a portion of it and putting that away in a place where it's, where it's um, safe and can't be broken down. And their figures were astounding, like the way they did. All that was done, that was uh, one PhD student had done some work with clover and they'd found us a 17% increase in soil carbon in 14 weeks, which is just it's absurd. Just, yeah, that's extraordinary. It was extraordinary because it's always been firmly believed that by soil scientists that you can't build carbon quickly in soil and it's quite ephemeral. It's there one minute and gone the next. But they were able to build it because blocking those two chemical processes that, that break it down. Okay, so, so Peter's come up with this... No one else is interested in it. How did you guys then take over and take this idea and run with it? Crazy, isn't it? So, I <laughs> know, oh it's madness. Guy rang me when he came home from the, uh, from the uh, conference and said, I just, like he'd been handed the keys to the universe. And he said, I'm getting this bloke out to come and speak. You know, we got him to come out to Grenfell and there was about, you know, 10 farmers in the room or something and he came out and presented his work again. And he just loved to have people that could actually understand you know, the enormity of, of his discovery, I suppose. And we said, well, you know, where's it up to? Like, oh, when do we get to use the technology? He said, I'm basically retiring. The PhD student doesn't want to take, um, take it forward. Um, so um, said, well, can we do some trials back home? We thought we'll get it into agricultural soils and we'll find that it won't work. And we took it home and we did trials with canola and cotton and got a similar result um, on, on both back in soils at home. And that's when we thought, wow. That's amazing. So what are you doing? You're putting, are you, how are you getting this fungi into the soil? How are you getting into your crops? So let's just, for the layman, for the city yeah, slickers sure. here, how are you getting it in there? For the purpose of, of that trial, we just grew it on sterilised um, wheat seed. So, so you grow the fungi on so the seed. So you grow it, inoculate on the seed and then you incubate it and grow it, Yeah, grow out the fungi. And then on you the, plant that seed with the fungi on it. Yeah, how we did it then is vastly different to how we're doing it now. Now we're at a commercial stage with it that we're actually making it into an oculum that we dress the seed with it. So, okay. Okay. so it's it, basically about putting it around the seed though. So you plant it with, you kind of plant this fungi with the seed when you're actually planting the seed. Exactly, exactly. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And so this, this fungi that captures this extra carbon here, does it have to, you know, if I till my soil and dig it up and that, does that disturb it? Does that release the carbon? Do you have to not kind of disturb the soil to keep it in there? Definitely to a point. But a lot of this carbon that we're finding that we're sequestering now, we're putting it at, at depth. So it really costs you a lot of money to, to dig it up anyway. So it's not like you can't ever till your ground again because that's unrealistic for farmers. There's sometimes, that, you know, that we've got minimum till systems now. Um, that most farmers are using, but it, it's not a deal breaker for, for carbon sequestration. It sounds like quite an extraordinary kind of technology here. Now, it's got a lot of interest around it. You've since raised $155 million in investment for the technology and formed a biotech startup called Loam Bio. How does Soil Sequest and Loam Bio operate? How do they work together? So Loam Bio was, was the commercial entity that was spun out of Soil Sequest. So it was to develop the, the technology um, and, and Soil Sequest is still the not-for-profit. It's the largest shareholder of, of Loam Bio. So once we're commercial, that will feed back into, into the not-for-profit to develop the systems for, um, for farmers and support farmers in, in building systems to, 
sequester more carbon. I want to go into the business model and how it's going to be successful going forward. But just before we do, there's a lot of talk about regenerative farming and using that to build up carbon and soil and that kind of thing. Is this a regenerative farming method or is this a, a different method? Like where, where do you kind of put this in that kind of debate? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. I think it's probably one of the ones where we struggled, where we didn't fit um, originally because to the regenerative farmers it was seen probably as a tech fix but uh, the industrial agriculture was seen as another biological you know mm. so we we just didn't fit anywhere in that uh in the scheme of things so so and so your approach how would you distinguish it from regenerative farming i mean regenerative farming obviously can take a time it does use things like cover crops like you're talking yep. about in that yeah is this an easier solution for the farmer who perhaps doesn't have the you know, doesn't really want to become a regenerative farmer. Is this easier for more farmers to use this approach? Is that what makes it better for, that, from your perspective? Yeah, that was the big thing. And that's what Guy and I saw, I suppose, was agriculture's got to be part of the solution. For agriculture to be part of the solution, we've got to be able to get the centre of the bell curve. Like I love all things, you know, regenerative farming, permaculture, you know, biodynamics, all those things are, are great and they, and they all work. But can can we get the centre of the bell curve to, to deploy those things in the time frame we have. And the answer to that is just a resounding no. The, the phrase has been coined, it's the gateway drug for farmers for, to, to be able to start carbon farming. So you as a farmer can put this seed dressing on your seed and plant it in the ground and it's something you're familiar with. It's not something you don't have to change your business at all. You don't have to go away from growing wheat to growing 13-way cover crops or, yeah. or whatever. You don't have, it's no, there's no paradigm shift that's, needed to be overcome for the farmer. Okay, so it's a lower barrier of entry, really. It's easier to do. And this, I guess, leads to the fact that, you know, you're wanting farmers to respond to this, some who probably are still slightly sceptical or don't have the same perspective necessarily of you. Now, there's a business model which is that, you know, obviously there is the benefits itself of saying we've got more carbon in the soil, but the model that's been discussed a lot is saying, hey, if we can capture a lot of carbon in soil, can you give us a carbon credit and we can sell that on the market for carbon farming? You know, is that, that's the kind of market you're looking at. Is that right? Definitely. And I think this is where we've had the, probably a bit of pushback. I think farmers, I mean, I've used the phrase, farmers are looking at this with folded arms and furrowed brows. You know, they're looking at it uh, as this the next place we're going to get screwed. So that is the challenge in itself. Like it's a, it's a whole new industry and there's a lot of pushback on commoditizing carbon as such, but I don't see that we're going to get the deployment um, and we'll be able to use climate uh, agriculture as a climate mitigation tool unless we do put a price on carbon. It's, it has to be an item line on a balance sheet. Otherwise, um, mm. there's not a farmer or an agronomist in the world that does not know that carbon is good for soil. It's just that how do I get remunerated in that year? Yeah. Not something sometime down the track if I build enough that, you know, there's a Ratan Lal is a famous soil scientist who said that um, when a farmer is poverty-stricken and suffering, he passes that suffering onto his land, you know, and it's just, it's just so true that farmers, you've got to be making money to do these things. What's the kind of time frame on this? You know, you, you've, you've got peer-reviewed papers about this. You've got the technology you're confident about. How long do you have to kind of show it's working on your farm and the other farmers doing this? before it becomes something you can really sell to farmers across the world, I guess? Well, I mean, 
we are essentially. I mean, we're in uh, Canada and the States and, um, and just into Brazil now. So we, we are across the world um, essentially. But it is that early adopters that we've got now and it's not necessarily looking at it as, I mean, myself as a, as a farmer, I'm not necessarily looking at this as a, as a money-making, like, you know, venture. Like, it'll be great. It'll be a pleasant surprise when it happens. But I think, you know, we're looking, our government has a, agreed to, what, 43 47% reduction to 2005 emissions by 2030. Like, to think that agriculture, my industry, is going to be left out of that is absurd. Like, we're going to have to be responsible for our emissions. So they're going to be measuring the emission side. So what's the other side of the, of the, of the ledger? Um, so this is where, you know, I'm really keen to, to put my peg in the ground and say I'm measuring my soil carbon so I can offset yeah. those, those emissions. And that's where, um, that's where Loam Bio uh, have got the, you know, I really feel the, pro- the value proposition really right for farmers that yeah. they can engage. As you say, I mean, it really in the end, to deal with climate change, we need not only those of us who are passionate and care about it a lot to change, you need everyone to change. And if you can make it so it's economically advantageous for farmers to do it, it's going to have a much bigger impact, isn't it? Oh, exactly, 100%. We incentivised the loss of carbon out of that soil, um, you know, 100 years ago that started, like I said, turn of the century where we started to do that and and rewarded farmers um, for doing that. Now let's reward farmers putting the carbon back in and let's reward farmers for biodiversity and all these things that have got flow-on effects for everyone around the globe. It's sort of the farmers are the, are the stewards of that land. We're the conduit, you know, between the atmosphere and that, and that carbon sink that, you know, that's devoid of all that carbon. We've just got to be able to join the two and yeah. we do that by way of technologies and 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 markets are you uh how are you feeling right now you because you're at the very beginning of this kind of journey in a way are you excited are you daunted how do you feel right now i'm inspired i think there's a massive amount of potential there's a great quote out of um paul gilding's book the great disruption talking about climate change where he says that we're um talking of humans saying we're dumb but we're not stupid We've shown in the past, and he uses examples like the war effort and that, where we're slow to react, but when we do, we hustle hard and we get stuff done and, uh, you know, and we generally prevail. I like to think that that's how we're going with that. I think the world is starting to realise that we have to do something about this and there's an opportunity. We've got technologies there now to be able to, to measure these things that we haven't been, we haven't had access to before. Like we haven't been able to measure the carbon effectively. There's geospatial technology out there now that, you know, with satellite that's starting to be able to show that it can measure soil carbon. There's, you know, ground resonance imaging stuff that can be, you can drive over your ground with a, with a machine and measure your carbon. We'll have that on our air seeders, you know, that will be able to measure how much carbon's in our soil. So we'll get that real that, that feedback loop from our system about the different things we did here in this patch that we didn't do over there that's, do you know what I mean? Like yeah, we're yeah. Going to That's fascinating, the role of technology in this, because I must admit every time I've seen, you know, soil carbon being measured, it's somebody coming out to the farm and sticking a cylinder down and pulling out a metre or two of soil and mm. taking it away and analysing it in a lab. So you're saying there's going to be technology where we can use satellites and other technologies to kind of 
be tracking this on a much more you know, constant basis as well. Exactly, yeah, and that's where it's where it's getting to. And as I'm saying, it's really exciting to to see that for the consumer. It's sort of like everyone feels a bit bewildered about what you can do. It's such a big problem, climate change. But I think it really is where it starts and finishes, isn't it? Like if uh, if there's not a market for for something, you know, the market gets what the market wants. So um, there's an opportunity for people there to differentiate yourself in the marketplace and go and provide a good or a service that is going for the betterment of the environment and it's not greenwashing of that now because we've got technologies now that can mm. you know connect growers to consumers like there's technology now that you can go and scan a shirt and you can know where that cotton was grown the paddock that mm. it was grown in you know like this is the sort of thing where it's getting to so when there's the opportunity now to, to differentiate yourself in the marketplace it's an interesting question you say about consumers and the pressure they i mean is there actually a reward for instance so you get carbon credits because you build up the carbon in your soil. You, you've got beef on your property. You can say, well, I'm going to offset that, the emissions from the beef and the methane from the beef. You can have a carbon neutral piece of stake here. Is there actually the demand from consumers from the market at the moment for that kind of thing that's driving this change? I think more and more so, isn't it? Uh, and I think the big thing is I get a bit frustrated when I hear about it. it it's sort of not that we're not going to have new things come in, and um, but it's like we're going to have this massive revolution that we're going to just go away from what we do in agriculture. Like it's just not going to happen. Like we are going to continue to do agriculture the way we do agriculture. It's about the opportunity is um, that we've got to be able to to move forward into a low carbon. Um, economy like cotton industry is a really really good one like you'll you'll often hear if you look on Facebook it'll tell you we should be growing hemp instead of cotton you know like I'm a cotton farmer I've got two cotton gins that are uh, that are 20 k's from me I've got contractors that that own 1.2 million dollar machines that all they do is pick cotton um, that industry is is firmly entrenched it's trillions of dollars have been spent on the on the cotton industry is it realistic that the cotton industry is going to be replaced by a hemp industry that's got no infrastructure or is the cotton industry going to move into a low carbon economy and and consumer demand is going to demand that the cotton is grown in a certain way and then the farmers will fall into line and that's where we're being able you know providing farmers with the technology now to be, a, to be a part of the solution. This is where it's getting really exciting. Please thank Mick, ladies and gentlemen. Give me a round of applause. <laughs> to follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or join us for a live recording, go to 100climateconversations.com.